a couple of weeks ago before the monsoons hit, I was out in the front yard and I was talking with a couple of neighbors. Actually, they were kind of talking and I was listening in on their conversation and they were talking about the upcoming annual meeting of Berkshire Hathaway because both of these guys invest, they're small time investors in Berkshire Hathaway. And the annual meeting was coming up. So they were all excited to go and to hear Warren Buffett. And for those of you who don't know, Berkshire Hathaway is a company, it's an investment and holding company, and it's owned by this gentleman right here. That's Warren Buffett. And people go to the annual conference more to hear him speak than they do to find out how the company is doing, because you can find out how the company is doing online. But Warren Buffett has a well-earned reputation as, a, as a really a savvy investor. He started investing when he was 11 years old. You can see he's 88, so he's been investing for 77 years. That's longer than the Vincents have been homeschooling. <laughs> Sorry, it was just one more joke at your expense. But that's a long time, so 77 years he's been investing. According to Forbes magazine, he's worth $82 billion. That fluctuates a little bit because the market changes. So it could be more, it could be less today if you looked online. That makes him the number three richest person in the world. Anybody want to guess who number one and number two are? Yeah, I heard one. Yeah, who's number two? Yeah. Number one is Jeff Bezos, who is worth somewhere north of $109 billion. And Bill Gates is number two. Bill Gates is worth northward of 95-ish billion dollars. Again, that fluctuates based on the market. So poor Warren, man, he is a pauper compared to those guys. And as I was doing research for this, what's really astounding is that J.D. Rockefeller, if J.D. Rockefeller were alive today, he'd be worth 340-something billion dollars. It's just unimaginable amounts of money. Warren Buffett, because of his investment savvy, he's known as the Oracle of Omaha. And like I said, people go to the meeting to hear what the newest trend is, what his secrets to success. And you might be wondering that too. How does he do it? Is he lucky? Is he smart? He's got some really smart people working for him. But how does he do it? And the question you're probably asking is, what does any of this have to do with us, right? Because as far as I know, <laughs> as far as I know, we have no millionaires or billionaires in here. And if we do, and you've been holding out on us, would you go to the foyer? And would you talk to Jeff Powell? Because he's got a little building project that he would love to talk to you about. We'll even put your name on the building somewhere. Not on the front, but somewhere. So articles have been written. If you just Google Buffett investment strategies, tons of stuff will come up. Articles have been written. Books have been written. But according to the man himself... His secret is that he follows three or four, sometimes it's five, five simple principles, and he follows them consistently every time he invests. And that has allowed him to earn 
$82 billion because he didn't start out with wealth. He didn't inherit. He is a self-made billionaire. And so following those principles has allowed him to generate an incredible fortune for himself and also for Berkshire stockholders. And as for what it has to do with us, in Matthew 6, Jesus told his followers to store up treasures in heaven. He said, don't store up treasures on earth because thieves break in and steal. Uh, rust destroys, moths destroys. Don't, don't put all your time and your effort into storing up treasures here on earth. Store up treasures in heaven because those are eternal. Those are going to last. And so it makes me think, well, how do we do that? Do we have a strategy for doing that? So my thesis today is that we can take Buffett's principles, slightly modified for our purposes, and that we can look at them and use them when we think about how we're going to invest our time, our talents, and our money for the goal of storing up eternal treasure in heaven. Now, anytime you invest, there are caveats. Oh, these are the four rules. Okay. Anytime you invest in a mutual fund or you look at a prospectus or something, there are always caveats. Usually they involve the potential for losing money or the need to get a financial advisor, a professional financial advisor. If you go on any kind of day trading site, they'll tell you, look for a professional financial advisor, don't. Try to do this on your own, the potential is there for, for losing money. Well, investing for eternity also has, investing for eternity also has some caveats. It just really just one caveat, but it's in three parts. I want to briefly cover it. This is what it is. God owns it all. I am the manager or steward, depending on your translation, of all that God has given me, and I will give an account one day for my management. So God owns it all. <clears throat> I am the manager of all that God has given me, and I will give an account for my management. So God owns it all. Let's unpack that a little bit. This is from 1 Chronicles 29, 11. It is when David, he wanted to build the temple, if you remember, and God said, no, you can't build the temple because you're a man of war and your hands have shed blood, but your son will build the temple for me. And David said, well, that's just too big of a task for my son because he's young, so I'm going to collect everything that he needs to build the temple. So he put out the call to Israel. He said, bring everything as a free will offering to build the temple for God. And they did. They brought gold and silver and jewels and fabric and brass, all kinds of things that were necessary. Everything that Solomon was going to need to build the temple, the Israelites brought in abundance. And this is David's prayer when he was blessing the people. And it sums up, for me, I think, succinctly God's ownership of everything because it talks about God's ownership at a macro level and God's ownership at a micro level. It says, yours, Lord, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. 
Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. The picture there is the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions, maybe trillions of galaxies. And that verse says that at a macro level, big, overarching, God owns the universe. So God created that. Think, God created that with a word. God spoke and that came into being. It holds together because God wills it to be so. God inhabits, he, he is not the universe, but God inhabits the universe in a way that we can't fathom and don't understand. Everybody take a deep breath. Let it out. You took that breath because God desired you to and allowed you to. You're going to take the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one because God allows you to. Whatever wealth you have or whatever wealth you don't have is because God desired you to have that or to not have that. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that our bodies belong to God. We are not our own. We are purchased. Everything seen and unseen belongs to God. And why do I beat that horse to death? Well, it's so that we understand what we're dealing with. Have you guys ever borrowed something? I'm sure you have. <clears throat> maybe something big or maybe something little. But what do we do when we borrow something that belongs to somebody else? We usually take better care of that thing than we do of our own things because we don't want to mess it up because it belongs to somebody else. We don't want to have to look at that person and say, you know that car you lent me, I wrecked it, or that thing you lent me, it's broken. We don't want to do that. We want to have that same attitude with God. This is what's really astounding, is that God owns everything, but he allows us to manage his things for his purposes. God doesn't relinquish ownership when he allows, when he gives you money or he gives you time or he gives you talents, God doesn't relinquish ownership of those things. <clears throat> he gives them to you for specific purposes. And here's what's really crazy to me is that God doesn't hold us responsible for the results of what we do. And this is what I mean by that. So I absolutely affirm that it is Christ who is building his church. And I absolutely affirm that it is God who draws people. Right? Mike has talked about this the past couple of weeks. That spiritual things are only discerned by spiritual means. And that only happens when God works in somebody's heart. So we're not responsible for the effects of what we do. We're responsible for what we do and how we do it. And God takes care of the rest. This is what 1 Corinthians 3 says about that. Oh, so God allows us to you. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. So God allows us to use his things, they're God's things, but one day we're going to give an account for how we use them, for what we did with them. What'd you do with the time? What'd you do with the talents? What'd you do with the money that God gave you? This is what 1 Corinthians 3 says, according, oh, I got a little bit, okay, I'm going to read it from here because I, it's not the same. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it, but each one is to be careful how he builds on it. 
For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, there's a lot that could be said that actually could be a sermon in and of itself. But I just want to point out a couple of things in that verse. And the first is, as I said earlier, that we are responsible for how we build and what we build with, not necessarily for the results of that building. This is the judgment on quality. It's not, a, it's not a judgment on your salvation that has already been settled. And then that this should give us hope and encouragement because you ask yourself, well, what does it mean? Does it, is gold, silver, and costly stones? Billy Graham, obviously, built with gold and silver and costly stones when he preached to millions. John Kerry or some other missionary preached or built with those things. And so I'm sitting here, normal guy, how am I building with those things? Listen, if you're a mom and you have cleaned up the same mess 20 million times, you've read the same book, you've changed the same diapers, to the extent that you're doing that to honor God, you're building with gold and silver and precious gems. When you do anything, you, you obey your parents, you clean your room, you wash the dishes, to the extent that you're doing that to honor Christ and honor God, you're building with gold and silver and costly stones. Anything that we do, even the ordinary things that we do that are done to honor our Lord and Savior, to honor Christ, our building with costly jewels and gold and silver. It's not just, it's not just for somebody out here, some evangelist that preaches to millions. It's for everybody in this room. We can all build with these materials. And we do it, when we do it, the things that we do, the ordinary, daily, everyday, mundane things we do, we do them for Christ, we're building with quality materials. The second part of this is that I hope that we all want whatever we build to survive. This verse scares me a little bit because I don't want to get to heaven and have built with straw. And I think the NASB actually says stubble. I'm not sure. But I don't want my stuff to get burned up and I'm sitting there with Jesus in my burnt clothes and, and loss. That's just a scary thought to me. And so I want to build with quality materials. And going back to the principles, this is a long introduction, but going back to the principles, I think these principles can help us as we do that. So let's get into them. Okay, the first one is, this is the first of Buffett's principles is use the right criteria when evaluating an investment. So when Warren Buffett is about to invest in a company, somebody 
some young smart accountant in his office says, hey boss, we should do this, or we should do this. One of the things he looks at is not only the stock price, he does look at the stock price, but he looks at other things. Does there a good management team in place? How long has that management team been there? Are they new? Are they on the way out? What is the company's debt load? Are they mortgaged up to their hilt and so they don't have room to acquire something or all they're doing is servicing debt? Where are they positioned as far as other companies in the industry? So price is not the only criteria that Warren Buffett uses to evaluate an investment. And so the question for us is, what about us? How do we evaluate? Do we have a criteria for how we evaluate how we're going to use our time and our talents and our money? Or do we just kind of go about life, daily life, whatever comes, comes? I want to suggest these three things. On your study sheet, they're kind of sample questions because they talk big picture. You may have different criteria, and that's great. Develop your own criteria for how you're going to use your time, your talents, and your money. But some of the things we can look at, is it a wise use of time? Ephesians 5.16 says, make the most of the time because the days are evil. And the Greek in that verse actually means to redeem, to buy back the time. So when we talked about Boaz redeeming Ruth, buying back, that's kind of the sense of it. Are we buying back the time? Are we using the time wisely? We live in a day and age where there's almost limitless opportunities to do stuff. And a lot of it is good stuff. It's not bad stuff. We're not at the bar or we're not uh, robbing banks or anything like that. There's tons of opportunities to do good things. One of the things that astounds I'm going to call out homeschoolers because I am one, and so I can do that. But one of the things that astounds me is just how busy we can be. It is just crazy the amount of things that we can be involved in, and all of a sudden you have no time for anything else. So we need to ask ourselves, is what I'm doing making the best use of the time? Am I buying it back? Am I redeeming it? Is what I'm going to do, what I'm going to buy, where I'm going to go, is it going to have eternal value? What am I spending my time on? What am I spending my money on? Is it a benefit to myself or others? 1 Corinthians 10. We always want to be doing things that are good, but that are good in an eternal way. We want to bless others, benefit others. Jesus is instructive to us in this because in John 5, he says, I'm always working. My father is always working and so am I. That's my paraphrase. And so what he meant by that was everything that he did was in service to his mission, which was to redeem a people. So everywhere he went, everyone he spoke to, every miracle he performed, was seemingly, if you look, he wasn't just traipsing over Judea and Galilee, just kind of, oh, we'll go here, we'll go here. Everything was in service to his mission. And we should have that same kind of attitude. What are we doing? We, the, the goal here, guys, is not that we never do anything but read our Bibles and pray. We don't want to be monastic. 
That's not what I'm saying. We live in the 21st century. I don't think that's realistic. Not that there would be anything wrong with reading your Bibles all the time and praying. But that's just not the world we live in. The idea is, is are we intentional? Do we have a plan for how we spend our time, how we spend our money, and how we spend our talents? I've got a homework assignment for you. What I want you to do, kind of help you process some of this, is I want you to go home, and after your nap, unless you took one here, uh, your second nap, after your nap, I want you to look at your calendar, and just look at the calendar for the next five days. And either with this criteria or criteria that you use on your own, you develop on your own, think about what you're going to do for the next five days. And apply some of those things. Is it, is it a wise use of time? Does it have eternal value? Is it a benefit to myself and others? Right? Now, I can see some wheels turning in here from some of the younger people in here. Um, you can't get rid of homework or chores or cleaning your room, uh, none of that stuff, right? Because that is obeying your parents, and that's a commandment, and that does have eternal value. If you're a husband, you can't not do the dishes. Honey, i got to pray. I can't do the dishes. That's not going to cut it either. But take a look at it. See what, how you're using your time. And again, guys, this is not to beat anybody up or to condemn anybody. It's just to get us in the mindset of thinking about how we're using our time. Okay, number two. Warren Buffett practices value investing. What that means is that he looks for companies who are undervalued, whose stock price is undervalued relative to their overall health. So basically, what that means is he's looking for a diamond in the rough. Warren Buffett is looking for a company that he can come in, he can buy cheap, but it's got good fundamentals, and over time, it's going to produce good returns for him. The application for us is, is that we need to be looking for people and investing in people that may be undervalued. This is from uh, 1 Corinthians, and it talks about the kind of people that God chooses to save. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to shame, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So, God chooses, this is my paraphrase again, God chooses foolish, weak, lowlifes. And I am one. And if you're part of the covenant family of God, you are one too. Those are the kinds of people that God is seeking. And those are the kinds of people that we should be seeking. I love that Mike has been teaching through Saul and David's stories because those are illustrations of this concept. The people wanted Saul because he was tall, he was good-looking. There was nobody in Israel that looked like Saul. Saul was the guy. He looked like a king. And yet, God rejected him because his heart was not what God wanted. And when Samuel 
went to anoint David. He didn't know he was anointing David. But when he went to anoint David king and he saw Eliab, he said, surely this is God's anointed. So Eliab must have looked like David. I mean, must have looked like Saul, excuse me. Tall, good-looking guy. And God says, no, that's not him. It's this spindly little shepherd boy over here that nobody would have given a second thought to. And the reason I say we need to look for those people is because we don't have any problem looking for Saul's. We don't have any problem attaching ourselves to Saul's. But we pretty regularly disregard or overlook people like David, like people that are on the margins. And we need to, our Father is looking for those people, and we need to be looking for them as well. Right, the third one. Warren Buffett invests for ownership, or ownership, not profit, is the primary goal of investing. When he invests in a company, he's looking to buy enough of that company that he has an ownership stake in it. So he doesn't want to just invest. He does want to invest, but he wants to be an owner. And I think, for me, this is the one that is most applicable to the church, but I also think it is probably the one that we neglect the most. Because I think a lot of in the church, I think we have a lot of an investor mentality and not an ownership mentality. And what I mean by that is an investor is looking for what he can get out of an investment. So if you're a day trader, you want to you want to buy a stock that is low, and then hopefully that stock will run up, and then you'll sell it because you want to get profit out of it. Which is why you see the stock market doing this. It doesn't seem rational, but it's people taking profits because that's what they're after. They're after just getting money out of it. In contrast, an owner wants to put into it. A lot of you are business owners yourself. I've never owned my own business. I've always really worked for the government until now. But a lot of you are small business owners. You put yourself into that business. You're not just, you are concerned with a profit, Right? You have to provide for your family, you want to earn money, all those things. But your main concern is with something else. You're concerned about the long-term longevity of your company. You're concerned about the name of that company. You're concerned about the overall health of that company. And that's a huge difference in mindset. I think we, you can't overestimate that mindset. We see, I was reading a blog this week, and I think it was Tony Campolo. Um, he left the faith a long time ago, but this was a different story. Kind of a, it was a blog post on deconstruction stories. So people that have lost, left the faith. So uh, Tony Campolo is one, Gunger. I can't remember the guy's first name. Gunger is his last name. Anyway, he's a musical artist. Probably many of you don't know who he is. But he left the faith. Anyways, this article on why people leave the faith and their deconstruction stories. And what struck me is that in a lot of these cases, they had an investor mentality. So they, for whatever reason, got hurt by the church. 
Somebody in the church hurt them. Or I put all this into the church and it didn't turn out the way I thought it would. Or they came across some theological position that they just could not reconcile. Whatever the specifics of their situation was, they came across some disappointment and they couldn't get past it. The church did not do, did not produce for them what they thought it should. And when it didn't, they just gave up on it. They left. They exited. And in doing that, not only was their faith made a shipwreck, but people that believed in them were, were hurt by it. This doesn't just happen in a vacuum. When somebody, especially somebody like Gunger, who is famous, when they leave the church and they talk about how bad it is and this, this, and the church is full of hypocrites and yada, 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 that doesn't only affect them, it affects all of us. It weakens the body. Okay? But do we see do we see this attitude in people who don't leave the faith, who stay in stay in the church? And I want to suggest that we do. I want to suggest that we see an investor mentality from those that stay in the church. How often have you heard somebody say, or maybe you've said, I just don't get anything out of it. I just don't get anything. Why do I, we go to church, but I just don't get anything out of it. Well, typically what that means is you don't like the music, or the sermon's too short, or the sermon's too long, or you don't like the shirt that the person's wearing, or it's too hot, which it is a little warm in here today, I will say that. I'll give you that one. But there's, there's something that you're expecting to get out of being here, and when you don't get it, you're disappointed. Now, let me say that we should absolutely come to church expecting to get something. Here's my, here's my pitch to you guys, is that we should flip the script. Instead of coming to church expecting Mike to give me something or Larry to give me something or Kent to give me something or Sean or Bill or David to give me something or for the tech guys to give me something or the coffee ladies to give me something, right? What if we flip the script saying, I am going to come to church, I'm going to have prayed for the people that are serving, I'm going to get here on time, I'm going to get here in a good attitude, I'm going to look for the people that nobody is talking to. I'm going to look for the visitors. If there's something that I see that needs to be done, I'm going to do it. What if we flip the script and we come to church with, I am going to give as much of myself to my family on the Lord's Day as I absolutely can with a great attitude. Guaranteed, guaranteed you will get more out of church that day than you do when you come to church with an investor mentality. Absolutely guaranteed, guys. Try it. I agree. <laughs> the main difference between an investor and an owner is an investor takes a short view where an owner takes a long view. And that brings me to the the last principle, 
which is invest for the long term. Warren Buffett will say, I think, where am I? Okay, here we are. Uh, this is a quote from him. He says, successful investing takes time, discipline, and patience. No matter how great the talent or effort, some things just take time. So Warren Buffett will say that their Berkshire Hathaway's policy on investing is that they like to invest. Their favorite term for investing is forever. He says, buy a stock that you would be happy to own if there was no market, there was no ups and downs. Buy something that you will be content to hold forever. The lesson for us is, is that we need to be, we need to be in this thing together for the long term. When, that's why you should be very careful when you make a commitment to a church because it should be a long-term, if not a life-term, commitment. Now, we're an anomaly here because there's people that have been here for 20-plus years, and I love that about our little family. And I'm not saying there's never a reason to leave a church. We sent Ryan out today because he's moving to a new city and a new job. But here's the thing, is that Ryan is going out as part of our family. We're not cutting Ryan off. We're blessing Ryan. Ryan, we're, we're establishing a satellite over in Lawrence, right? Through, through Ryan and through people that leave this body. But we should be committed to each other for the long term. And one of the reasons is because Scripture tells us there's 59 one another commands. Pray for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Love one another. That only really happens in the context of long-term relationships. So yesterday, the Vincents had their farewell to homeschooling, and it was just astounding that people they had known for 48, 49, 50 years, okay? My wife and I were in the military for 27-plus years, many of you know. We know people all over the world, but we don't have deep relationships like that. And don't get me wrong, I love hearing from friends that we haven't seen in a long time. We catch up with each other on Facebook. But it's different because you're not in their lives. You're not rooted in people's lives. Guys, I can't bear your burdens. You can't bear my burdens. One, if we're not around each other enough to know what our burdens are. If I'm not involved in your life and you're not involved in my life, if we're switching churches because I don't like the music or whatever, how do you ever get rooted so that we can build into each other the way that we are supposed to? It can't happen in transitory relationships. It just can't. It's the nature of being together, serving, laboring beside each other for the long haul, that you build those things and that you're able to live out those one another principles. Like I said, I love that we have people who are here a long time. Long time, excuse me. And the trick for those of us that are here long term or is, is to keep at it. We don't want to be like the married couple that you see in a restaurant where they've, you can tell they've been married for a long time because they don't talk to each other. They eat their meal in silence. We don't want to be like that. We want to stay engaged with each other no matter how long you're here. We want to be in each other's lives. 
The other reason is because sanctification is a long-term process. Right? We like to think that it's an individual process, and in a lot of respects it is. But I need you guys to help me in my sanctification. And you need me in yours. We need each other to keep each other, to help each other along that road to sanctification. That can only happen as we're in long-term relationship with each other. So those are the four principles. I hope that they have been helpful. I want to I end with the words of Psalm 49. And then I'm going to have you stand and we're going to read a verse together. This is what Psalm 49 says. It says, Do not be afraid when a person gets rich, when the wealth of his house increases. For when he dies, he will take nothing at all. His wealth will not follow him will not follow him down, though he blesses himself during his lifetime, and you are acclaimed when you do well for yourself. He will go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Listen, here's, here's the part that really struck me. Mankind with his assets, but without understanding, is like the animals that perish. I'm going to read that again. Mankind with his assets but without understanding is like the animals that perish. One day, everyone's going to die, Warren Buffett included. As far as I know, he has never professed faith in Christ. His billions are going to go to somebody else. And on that day, the only question is going to be, what did you believe about my son? What did you believe about Jesus? And for believers, the only question that's going to matter on that day is, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with my resources? How did you spend them? What did you build with? God grant us all the ability to come through the flames uh, with abundant reward. That's my prayer for us today, is that we would do that. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read this from 1 Chronicles 29. We're going to read it together. Okay. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name.